Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Earl Johnston from Hypatia Industries. Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. Marin Nulevent, freelancing in Portland, Oregon. And today we have on as our guest uh, John Alsop, a veteran of the web development industry and the one of the founders of the Web Directions Conference. John, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. And you're joining us from, you're, you're one of those future people, right? You're joining us from uh, Australia? That's right. It's tomorrow morning down here uh, in Sydney. So uh, we wanted to talk to you because you have a, a super interesting perspective. You have been around the web before the web was really a thing. Like, What was it kind of like back in the day when, when you got going? So, funnily enough, I was building something that uh, I was building a hypertext system in the early nineties. I actually was very interested in hypertext. So you could have uh, been you could have been the one that made the web if that hypertext thing well, caught on. Well, that's right. Although I, I, I kind of and interestingly, at the time, and I've written about this quite a bit. Uh, everyone who so what people don't know is that in nineteen ninety one. There was a big conference series called Hypertext because I knew how to name things back then, and it was the Hypertext was really a hot thing at the time. Yeah, you remember Xanadu? Do you remember Project Xanadu? Right, absolutely. Ted Nelson goes back to the late sixties, but by the late eighties and early nineties, you had a bunch of products from every major software vendor that utilized ideas of linking and so on. And there's a whole field of research that went back a quarter of a century that uses the term hypertext. So Tim Berners-Lee proposed a paper for that hypertext conference in 1991. And what people don't know, it was rejected. Mm. Oh, my God. So so seriously, like, (laughs) the whole field of hypertext, they allowed him to do a poster and a demo, but but he couldn't present it, right? And and it's actually, I've written quite a lot about it, uh, and I think it's it's really instructive, and it continues to be very valuable, the lessons we can learn from what happened there. It's because hypertext had a set of practices and ideas and concepts around it that were considered bedrock, that, that in order for it to be complex, rich hypertext, it needed to do a bunch of things. Right. And the web did none of those. It was decentralized. Um, the links were one directional. Uh, you, you know, like if I linked to a document, the document didn't know I was linking to it. Right. Yeah. And that was uh, a big foundation of all those hypertext systems. I remember absolutely. reading up on Project Xanadu. Yeah. So the, one of the core ideas of, of Xanadu, and, and, and actually a deeper idea was around intellectual property. Like, so one of the core right. ideas of Xanadu is the concept of transclusion, which is a bit like an iframe, really. But the idea of transclusion was when you, when you linked to and incorporated something from another document in, in, a, in an existing document, you actually weren't copying in. You essentially were including or transcluding the actual document itself. Yeah, it was a reference uh, so that if the original document changed, so would the, the thing that included right. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you can think of them a bit like iframes, right? Well, we, right. we kind of got there, but no one thinks of iframes as a kind of transclusion. And the reason why um, Nelson, why it was very important to him 
to have transclusion was to basically uh, allow for intellectual property to be maintained, right. uh, for people to be paid for their authorship and so on. So there were a whole bunch of things that the web just didn't do. And so I was building a desktop hub tech system for the Mac. Uh, and, and, and it came from my background. I studied law and a bunch of other things. Was this before I, or after HyperCard that you were working on this? So this was sort of, I guess, inspired in part by HyperCard, and I oh, okay. prototyped using HyperCard, and then I moved to building it. As John, well. I, I realized how old I was recently <laughs> when I was talking to some, some other people in the tech business, and I was likening something to HyperCard, and they looked at me and they said, what's that? Right. <laughs> like they had no idea right. what it was. <laughs> I know about like 15 and, and yeah, in some ways, I think it, that was a pivotal piece of technology that inspired a great many people. Right. Uh, and it's great many ideas. Uh, you know, like, like scripting language is probably kind of inspired, well, just every scripting language subsequent to it. And I, I feel like it has its influences on, on, on even JavaScript. So, yeah, HyperScript so was one of the coolest that. things about HyperCard. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, so you could kind of build, you could build. Um, rich content without necessarily having to program, but then you're going to add interactivity right. and, and, and deeper interaction using a scripting language. And I think that, I think it kind of inspired a lot of early web uh, designers and developers. Uh, so, so if you go back to, to the time when the web, web first emerged, it was among many systems and considered, if at all, to be inferior to many systems. So why did it uh, win? I, I shared, what happened? Why did so it win? A, yeah, that's it. Well, and you know, like I, I wrote, uh, I've written extensively uh, over the last twenty-five years, and one of the ideas I keep coming back to is, is where you know things that we often consider to be bugs are, are actually really features. So you just have to think about, you know, is is the simplicity of the web a bug, which at the time we thought it was, or was it a feature? And I think it was a feature. Hmm. So I think I think there were a couple of key factors, right? So one was uh, it was you could become a like you could know everything about web development in half a day right without you didn't have to be a programmer you didn't have to know any programming languages right um you didn't even have, you know you can simply like the, yeah, this simple idea of marking up a document which most people at the time who were in any way technically literate were, were kind of doing that's what word processing kind of looked like for right people, like certainly in the age of dos so this so the most part we'll see windows windows uh, you know 3.1 maybe it come out as a, a simple like so so for the most part unless you're a mac user you're a dos user so if you use the word processor, you were basically writing little macros and little, you know, little markup in, in your document to say... Or, or, or Unix and NROF and TROF. Right, exactly. So, so you know, but they, were, they were the most technical people. But even any, any computer user would have been very comfortable with the core ideas that the web body you know, of kind of marking up content and so on. And so I think it's, it's, it's simplicity right. was one thing. I think or, how, or how accessible it was to people, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you, I think it got its timing right. So mm. if you think about what happened in the nineteen eighties, is we um, we basically created a generation of, of digital creators. So you had the emergence of, of things like PageMaker and, and, and WYSIWYG. And, oh yeah, Aldous PageMaker. Uh, content. <laughs> right. You had the emergence of things like Photoshop and similar bitmap tools and, and, and early primitive you know, vector tools. Uh, even a, a video and, a, and audio editing. So what you did was you sort of suddenly were pumping the prime, or priming the pump, sorry, with, uh, you know, a bunch of folks who who could create content for this new platform. So imagine the web emerges in the mid-80s because the technology, you know, was there and the internet was there. 
Right. Pretty primitive, but not much less primitive than it was in 1991, 92, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, like a lot of the technology was there. But what wasn't there was a bunch of digital creatives who could suddenly see this platform as a, a, a distribution platform for their, their content. Right. And I think that was the other thing, that the web was envisaged as a way as we, we, we almost, it's almost a cliche, but, but for sharing scientific knowledge, it, it, um, it was yeah. not. I mean, let me, let me tell yeah. you, back in the day, back when the web was like kind of emerging, I had a forum, a forum on America Online. Like that's my, my company had a forum there and that was kind of like the, the digital hub. I know it sounds really quaint these days. And actually a lot of people probably don't even know what the hell America online is, but, but there was a time that the, you know, just not enough people were on the web. There wasn't really a, a critical mass. Um, but it's amazing. It's amazing the way that it exploded. Um, and you think that is attributed in large part to how accessible it was to the, the content creators. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that firstly, though, content creators existed, right? right? They were there, right? I think that kind of the late 80s digital explosion of digital creativity, which often ended up on paper. Like, there was this, a lot of people don't know, there's ex- a real transformation in the, in the magazine industry in the late the 1980s with desktop publishing. So instead of just having a relatively small number of really top-end publications, a lot of which still exist, you know, the Cosmopolitan, right. the, you know, the, the, the GQs and those sorts of kind of top-end, you know, the New Yorker, um, you suddenly had an explosion because the cost of production, distribution, printing of specialized magazines, uh, you know, like exploded, right? Um, yeah, I remember back in the day, my, my uncle was a printer. And he was around during that kind of transition to desktop publishing. And in, in fact, my, my father was kind of in the corporate marketing and communications business. And he actually called me to come in to help him figure out these funky new computers because they were starting to use like PageMaker and Quark Express and that, that kind of thing. And but the uh, my uncle, who was a printer, like they they got decimated for a while because people were able to produce a lot of this stuff a lot cheaper and a lot quicker with the the desktop publishing stuff, you know? Absolutely. So, you know, the, the whole bunch of interesting things happened, but I think one of the things that we have to get coming back to is I feel that it was really content, which is what's driven the world, mm. right? And content creators mm-hmm. and digital creators. That makes sense. Who, yeah, and they were there. They existed. And I think the other thing was um, the, the business of it all. Um, one of the criticisms of the web was that, um, which is ironic, but this was a relatively rare concept at the time, it was free. Mm-hmm. Right? Free news, there were no licensing fees, there were no licensing restrictions. But Tim Berners-Lee and Robert Calio, who was kind of his boss at CERN, who I've had the privilege to meet a, a few years back and, and talk with the guys, um, they pushed really hard within CERN to basically make it public domain. Right. the months to do that. Right? And that's so, probably a big key so, as well. Yeah, it wasn't a walled well, garden. And, and, there wasn't a, wasn't a wall gutter. And something very interesting happened at the same time that indicates it was the, may well have been the case. So there was a competing technology called Gopher. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, you know, nodding in agreement, the old folks. Still, you know, yeah, but a lot of people listening are like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> they don't right. even know what that so is. So Gopher. So it came from that. I believe the University of Minnesota, which I believe the Gopher, the Gopher is the, um, the, the mascot of the school. Uh and, and Gopher was not similar, probably in some ways easier to use uh, platform uh, to the web, uh, to, to the, the early World Wide Web. 
Uh, it, it even had things like images where at the time before the web hit, right? So, but right. what they did fate, fatefully, the regents of the University of Minnesota in the uh, in about 1993, they made a very fateful choice. Since some people argue, help the web win. And because it had probably a bigger um, user base, and what a lot of people probably don't know is the early Netscape versions were also Gopher clients, right? Mm. Like you go to web content, but they were also news reader clients and they were Gopher clients, right? So you just right. go to the Gopher protocol, Gopher colon slash slash. Well, tell people what Gopher out. is. Like what would it let you do for people that have never heard of it yeah. before? Yeah, look, it was a, in some ways a simplified version of the web where you could just incorporate text, but it also allowed you to incorporate images. You could link. So in many ways, it was, it was, it was a, a very similar competing technology to right. the web. But what the regents of the University of Minnesota decided was that you couldn't, um, you basically had to pay a license fee to run a server. Mm. So suddenly, to run the clients, you didn't have to pay. But to run a server, you did. And we ended up with this, the, I, I believe that really gave the web an enormous boost uh, because suddenly, if you wanted to run a web server or write a web server or anything, there was no intellectual property challenges, no costs. Right. And it was right at the time, I guess, where open source was becoming something of a thing. And, you know, it could well be that we all be go for developers now. Right. But I think you make um, a really good point that, that probably the, the barrier of entry and the fact that this stuff was free just made it super easy for, for people to get online. And, you know, I know my background is um, in software engineering. And um, yours is as well. And back in the day, you know, when I was working on Mac apps and, and that kind of stuff written in C or, you know, whatever it ended up being written in, the um, we kind of looked at the web as not really actual programming. Like people that are doing that stuff, they're not actually really developers, you know? I think that's been an attitude ever since. And I think it probably continues in many respects to be an attitude right. about the web, right? I think it's one of the challenges of how it's treated by universities. The languages, uh, you know, aren't treated with with respect in a lot of ways, or they're considered vocational. They're not, con you know, and as a consequence, I think this leads to some challenges around how we produce uh, developers and the nature of developers entering into the industries. Um, but did did you kind of have a similar view back then? In terms, you you came from a quote unquote real development background. Wow, it's a, is, yeah. is someone doing construction at your house? Yeah, they are. Is oh it terrible? Like, it sounds like it sounds like a kid is taking a balloon and just kind of <laughs> squeezing the air out of it slowly and annoyingly. You know what I mean? I do. I, I'm hearing it here. It's, so these are terrace houses where my office is, and, and it's literally adjacent terrace. So we ah. share a common wall. Whatever. Stop we're just, we're just going to ignore it and, and keep going. If you want to hear the gold, you're going to have to suffer through it. <laughs> That's it. Then we are, so you, you'll have to do it. But did you have kind of a similar view, you know, coming from a traditional programming background that the web was kind of like a, a playground or, you know, play toys, that kind of thing? You know, interestingly not. Um, and obviously, as my memory shapes by 25 years subsequent, my, I, I genuinely felt that it was a, the web was an underpowered technology that would be replaced by something that embodied that set of you know, fundamental principles and, 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 you know, characteristics that we all thought the had to have. Right. Right. So, so, um, so what, 
but but as a platform, I guess in many respects, I was also very interested in publishing and, and content, right? So while I was a software engineer, I was building systems to help people publish and manage like content, mostly written and, and, and visual um, content. So, so to me, um, you know, I, and at the time, I don't think anyone really saw it in any way as, as a development platform, right? It was yeah, I agree. Content markup and distribution platform. And I, I don't know about in uh, Australia, but uh, here it was actually really hard. I, I think one of the uh, things that really made the web kind of take off is when money started being exchanged online. And I remember in order to actually apply for and get a merchant account, which is what you needed to process this stuff, was really, really difficult because the banks didn't know what these online transactions were and they were scared of it. Like they were, they did not want to give out um, a merchant account to people that sold stuff online, which may sound insane today when you look at Amazon. And you think about the billions of dollars that is exchanged online. But back in the day, the banks were very reticent to give out a merchant account for anyone that sold anything online. Is it similar oh, in Australia? I think, oh, look, I, if anything, we, we lagged way behind. Hmm. I wouldn't really say that there was a professional industry of any real substance here until well into the 2000s. I remember we oh, wow. this conference in two, 2004. And uh, I remember, so we skipped forward a bit more than a decade now, but um, and it really was a decade before, I think, that for the most part, there were very many, if any, people really running, you know, like, you know, there was much of an industry, you know, I think a lot of people, it was a side gig that we were doing as part of what other things that we were doing. And right. I remember our very first conference, uh, one of the founders of, of uh, Campaign Monitor, which many people are probably familiar with now, a tremendous success story. Sure. Um, Sure. He he was there. He must have been very young at the time, and talked about. And I've known them ever since, and talked about. They were so excited that this, like at the time, they were running a little agency, and a lot of what they did was they were doing email campaigns for their clients, and that's where campaign marketing ultimately came from. So so when he came, oh, this is so exciting, and you know, like it's great to see so many people. And we had like a couple hundred people there, and then he said, oh, we're hiring someone, and we're really looking. We're really, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like people are actually here, and they're actually hiring people because I've been through more than a decade, okay, where you just if you wanted to have a, a way of being professionally in the industry you were, it was like you were hustling for like gigs here and bits there and um, so um, it, it took a very long time right. to transition yeah for us um, the website so was I, like an afterthought it was like oh you know I guess we'll make this thing just to kind of have it and it's amazing you know these days there are entire businesses that the whole uh, the entire business is the website you know which is quite a quite a change Oh, absolutely. So, but um, to, to your point of whether or not you know, how people felt about the, the set of technologies, whether they were kind of, you know, toys, or, I think that persisted and probably persists still. I mean, I wrote an essay oh, some years ago now, um, uh, but it was one of those ones heavily trafficked and it was also, you know, highly commented on, relatively speaking. Uh, and, and it was all like, oh, oh God. It, it just, I, <laughs> Lots of comments about, on the internet know, is never good. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Well, and, and, and you know the ones that are going to get comments, right? Right. You always know, and you know the comments. There's obviously, there seems to be, you know, inverse proportionality between the quality of the comments and then the quantity of the comments. But this was like, I, I kind of had enough about people saying, you know, web, the web is not real programming. And like, so, like I it was addressing particularly HTML and CSS, right? And talking about how, you know, these are complex, sophisticated technologies with enormous reach that will be around for generations. And, um, you know, we treat them as being trivial at our our peril, and in fact, um, you know, you, 
if we're not producing great content using these technologies, that we, you know, that's a huge mistake. And the number of people who had to weigh in about whether CSS was curing complete, therefore it was real programming. I'm mm. so boring, right? Right. <laughs> but but you know, I, I think that persists. I, I think, and I think that we perhaps to some extent, as as a collective industry, certainly maybe older folks do bristle a little at that kind of whole issue. Um, but uh, well, yeah. see, the interesting so thing, the, the respect was a long time coming. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing to me is that, you know, you were mentioning earlier that part of the, or one of the reasons you thought the web became the technology that was the standout. And a lot of people don't realize that there were a lot of competing technologies that could have been the standout. But you mentioned that one of the reasons you thought the web became uh, the technology that we're using now is how accessible it was for people to go ahead and create stuff. Um because it is true that any, you know, a designer that learned a little bit of HTML and a little bit of CSS could produce something, could produce a whole website, you know. But that has changed quite a bit these days, I think, where it's pretty, like, you need to be pretty technical to, to make a modern website. And do you think that that is a problem? Um, in other words, what was the web's strength in terms of how accessible it was for people to create stuff? Do you think the fact that it has become more uh, technical is raising that barrier? And do you, do you think that that could be a problem? Yeah, look, I think it is. Although, you know, when you see the rise of, of whether it's WordPress or hosted platforms like, you know, Wix and so right. on, which, you know, you know things, there are things you could be negative about in some of these things. But I, I think perhaps they're replacing the original build-your-own sort of right. approach that, that those early adopters had. So I, I don't think there's necessarily... I, I think there are avenues and mechanisms by which people can find audiences. And, and you know, in part, the question sort of is, are the likes of Instagram and other platforms, for better and for worse, becoming the place in which, you know, the, the creative, those creative folks find their audience? I, mean, right. I think that's what Medium in part is trying to do with written content. I think text has its own particular challenges. Um, but in terms of, you know, like, like visual activity, flexibility, brand, and so I, the, um, you know, I, I wonder whether we, we're, we're looking, we need to be looking in other places to find those kind of early instincts of, or, or, you know, the, 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 the early web that where, you know, like those early adopters were finding, trying to find a place for, for expressing and, and, and distributing their thoughts, you know, away from more traditional channels, which were very restrictive. Um, I mean, there, there's an irony in part that we're now recreating a whole bunch of siloed, you know, right. platforms. But is it Facebook, becoming Facebook. too? Is it becoming too fragmented? Like if if sites like Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you know, is where people are really spending the majority of their time, is that? kind of analogous to the media conglomerates and are, you know is it becoming too many little islands uh where the traffic and the content is concentrated yeah look i think there are many old timers and i include myself in that and maybe not just old timers but there are many of us who you know um would, would express that concern i think i think one of the great promises of the web was that democratization right um and and part of that was distributed nature and I think we're seeing some real risks, and it's very interesting that, uh, like, so, so I think opposite to this is perhaps what's happening right now at Facebook, mm. where 
Facebook for quite some time have really worked very hard with traditional publishers um, and traditional publishers have worked very hard with Facebook to fill your stream of content with a bunch of stuff from those those publishers and for those publishers to be able to monetize those as the attention seems to have moved increasingly toward a small number of those silo platforms like Facebook. But literally it seems in a matter of weeks, Facebook has decided for all kinds of reasons that they, they don't really feel is a long-term value in them for those relationships. And so, you know, a whole bunch of uh, publications, some of which have emerged essentially to, to, to take advantage of, of Facebook as a platform with BuzzFeed and Fox and right. Vice and all, you know, I know Vice has been around a long time, but you know, you know like a whole bunch that that really either emerged around Facebook to, to take advantage of, of Facebook as a distribution mechanism or have really started to, to, to rely heavily on Facebook, I think we'll, we'll face some very significant challenges, right? Um, I.e. go to the wall. Right. Um, and, and so perhaps we will, you know, need to relearn that lesson. Um, and, and, and ultimately, you know, maybe we, maybe we just have these endless cycles of, of kind of aggregation and disaggregation, right? So we've sort of even seen that the last 20 years or so with the web and, you know, maybe that, that's the cycles that we see. We'll see an aggregation toward Facebook and over-reliance on it, uh, monocultural business um, models, and then some sort of famine, which will essentially wipe out the businesses that are hyper-reliant on Facebook. And, and in the wake of that, I think people's desire for content and, and creativity, to, you know, like things to, to consume, to read, to watch, to listen to, that doesn't go away, right? I just think, um, you know, uh, so, so that attention will be sitting there waiting. Uh, and that's, I feel like that's probably what we're going to see. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you made a really good point earlier that a lot of the uh, content creators who might have been able to build the site themselves, they're now using tools like Wix or Webflow or, or some companies like they don't even have a website. They've got like a Facebook page. And if you want anything... You and they've got iTunes, right? They put their podcasts on iTunes and they put their videos on Vimeo. That's it. That's it. And you know, to me, there's some really interesting... So we're moving away from the core technologies to, to essentially what the technologies enable, which, to be quite honest, is what drew me to the web in the first place, right. Right? even as a software engineer. I, my concern, my interest of... Like, while I love... I have always loved writing software, what, what I've been always interested in is what are the impacts of the software we write? Mm. Like we talk about a tech industry. I had this conversation with a brilliant, long-standing designer yesterday. I had lunch, with. And, and 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 you know we talk about this tech industry, but there's not really a tech industry like anymore. Like there was for a while. I think more tech just is permeating. permeating every, yeah, tech is everywhere. By tech, right? It's in right? your it's refrigerator. Like we talk, <laughs> right. We don't talk about the electricity industry, right? Like I mean, there is an industry that creates right. electricity, but what but what's really interesting about electricity is is what changes when you electrify it, or what is enabled when you electrify it. And I think that's where we're moving. Towards, and and not just um, that, John. Oh my God, what happens when we don't have electricity? <laughs> like, you know, it's it's kind of like so it, we, too, if yeah. you lose your internet, you're like, oh my God, like my life is totally different. <laughs> you know, right? Exactly. And then and then maybe like, as we move up the pyramid, we ask ourselves, what happens when we decide to take a break from the internet, or right? Internet, all those technologies, because I I think you know I I you know as a parent and and, and you know as a, as a the person who's been involved in this industry for a long time. And, you know, I have concerns about whether or not the permeation and the extent to which the, the technologies and the, 
things we build on top of the platform are part of our life. Right. Literally 24 hours a day. No, I, I, I totally... Always I, entirely healthy, right? I, I totally get what you're saying because I remember I spent about three weeks on a liveaboard boat in the middle of nowhere where prior, prior to going down there, I was hyper interested in news like I was reading the news articles every day and all that kind of stuff and while I was away on that boat I couldn't do any of that and I felt like I was missing like so much like I I thought like the you know the world was ending and then when I when I got back and I I looked at what was going on like I was like nothing really happened like (laughs) you know there were tons of headlines and there's tons of alarmist crap you know everywhere but really nothing happened while I spent those three weeks away from all of this information and news. And that was kind of a, a revelation for me. And I, I actually stopped being so interested in reading news after that. You know, I kind of toned it down from there. Um, but, I, you know, one, one of the things that I wanted to uh, circle back to was um, you mentioning that um, a lot of people may be building content using some kind of a content creation tool, whether it's Wix or Webflow or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. The interesting thing to me is that I think what that means is that if you're a designer, you know, you're still going to have somewhat of a job because someone still has to design this thing and kind of make it look good. Although, you know, they are providing people with building blocks that look pretty damn good when you snap them together. Um, But there's this kind of like, mid-range developer that I think that their job is just going to disappear because if you're, if what you're skilled at is, you know, building HTML and building CSS, maybe, you know, a little JavaScript and, you know, you, you do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I think the, the type of things that you would work on are going to disappear because they're going to go to the, one of these platforms. Um, and you may be the one using that tool perhaps. Um, but it really seems to me like the areas where there's going to be real work are going to be the the more technical areas where, you know, people that are building Facebook or people that are building these platforms that other people are using to build stuff. And do you, do you have any thoughts on that? If you think that like my my personal point of view is that the the low end of web development is just going to get lopped off because these services are just going to gobble it up. Look, I think your instinct is, is 100% right. I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing or even the right thing. Right. Um, but we've noticed, so one thing we've noticed, is we run these events, uh, people may want to know, for the web and digital industries. And we, we, from, you know, quite sophisticated, you know, deep JavaScripts and, and you know, performance and security, um, all the way through to, um, you know, like interaction design, user experience design, right? So, right. so, you know, because we emerge around the web where kind of you yeah, pretty much wore every one of those hats. And so, but over time, we've kind of specialized individual conferences around each of those areas or multi-track conferences that, that there's an engineering track and a design track. And what we've, we've definitely seen over the last two years is a movement, a very serious kind of movement toward one or other of those camps. Right. People, sit in one or the other. So we, we, for a number of years, ran a conference called Respond, which obviously kind of, you know, kind of around web design, response to web design. And, and, and really a lot of it was about, at the time when we we're really starting to grapple with the challenges, multi-screen worlds and how we design and develop. And that was a real challenge. Like, you know, how do we design and develop for, you know, the tablet and the phone and the, you know, the, the laptop and the desk, you know, all those challenges. And what we found over the last 18 months is, is first that we, we kind of, moved a lot of that content more toward the kind of capital D design. Um, you know, probably around 30 to 50% HTML, CSS, 
really always kept the JavaScript kind of stuff out of that. That sat in our engineering conferences. And what we found is increasingly, um, and then we've done some research around this in all sorts of ways, that very few people simply write HTML and CSS anymore, particularly in the kind of professional setting. Right? Right. Increasingly, you know, they're saying maybe nice to have, um, maybe, right? And there's, you know, but really where the core of people's skills, people being, who's being hired for, either it really gravitates toward JavaScript with a bit of that on top, or moving toward very much design roles. And I think that right. the gap in the middle, like, we, you know, whether we want to see this gap, that role in the middle that you described, kind of your strengths are HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript and, you know, maybe, you know, those roles I'm certainly seeing kind of vanish. And then when yeah, I and, and that's the, the irony. people and... Yeah, that's the irony, John, is that, yeah. that if you were a designer or a user experience person who never invested a whole lot of time in getting like super good at HTML or CSS, like your job is probably still really secure because people still need really good design. And that's not something that can be automated via computer. But if you were one of those guys kind of in the middle that kind of was a jack of all trades doing a little HTML, a little CSS, tiny bit of JavaScript, like I really think that the floor is going to fall out and it's going to fall out soon. <laughs> Yeah, look, I, 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 look I, I, I do share that instinct. And, and so now if, if you're one of those people, like I, I understand how that feels. Right. I was a Mac developer in the, I was a Mac developer in the 90s, right? We, we Me too, man. I had the, did you have the phone book, the inside, inside Mac phone book? Absolutely. I still, I still got one. And I still got it. I, I think I might have one of, one of them somewhere and then um, the CD ROMs. And, and that's what our world felt like. Right. Um, I guess yeah. We, we kind of lived in denial, and the Mac was, and then of course the Mac did make a comeback. Yeah, people don't know this, John. I don't mean to. I don't mean to interrupt you, but a lot of people, believe oh. it or not, a lot of people that are around don't realize that you know, as a as a Mac developer, I had a day where I sat there and I'm like, oh shit, I better look for something else to do because Apple really was like <laughs> about to end, <laughs> which may seem <laughs> crazy. Of what? Yeah, it may seem crazy because it's the world's most valuable company now. But I, I'm telling you, there were there were some moments that I was sitting in my office and I'm going, "Oh shit!" Like I, I really need to figure out something else to do because this is done. You know, going the way of Sun Microsoft. That's very true. So, yeah, yep. Sun went that way. So he, so what was it? Yeah, SGI, graphics. Silicon Graphics. Right. Yeah. Yes, right. Like at the time that we covered these devices. So to come back to your point, so two points I'll make about yep. that. So firstly, Wired magazine had a cover in about 1998, just before Jobs came back, maybe slightly earlier. And it just had a, a it had the Apple, multi, the old Apple multicolor logo with the crown of thorns around it and mm-hmm. it just said, pray. I remember right. that. Um, by the way, they also said the web is dead. And yeah. <laughs> wow. They're pretty good at getting things wrong. Um, right. So that's my first point. But my second point to it is, is that, so that Apple reinvented itself and, and found a way to, 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 to make that tran- transition. But also a whole lot of Mac developers did too, right? And a lot, you know, and I, I think if you're, if you're listening to this and you're not, like I understand, like that's why I brought this up. I understand the sense of you know, maybe fear, anxiety, whatever you might think about a future in which you've invested so much in a set of skills, right? I think they're really great foundations, but I think one of two things t- tends to happen to people. Like people are often 
fearful or, or, or they have you know like a sense of, of, of incapacity around the deep like javascript deeper javascript you know oh my god i'm not a programmer and i would say to anyone who's really comfortable and competent with you know like with modern development using html css you know you have all the capability to do that there are so many great resources to go and and, and learn and you know if you're quite honest as much as i advocate very much for a vanilla approach to learning vanilla css javascript html it's clear in terms of um in terms of hiring and in terms of uh you know the work that that you would potentially do with clients is that you know the likes of react and angular and Vue, which seems to to, to really be getting great of momentum right now are technologies that that when we can come back to this question of like how much should we invest in a kind of that level of abstraction as opposed to the underlying level of abstraction right the technologies that you can adapt pretty quickly you can build some great stuff with that are in heavy demand and if right. i had that set of skills i would think about that as a, a transition step no yeah absolutely and, a, a thing to I think that if you're going to be in the web development business, like you need to learn some of these JavaScript front end frameworks, which is a big leap for a lot of people because there are a lot of people that do web development that, you know, they're used to kind of using off the shelf jQuery or whatever, and they do a little bit here and there just to make things work. But to actually use a framework like React or Vue or whatever is, is a big leap. For a lot of people, because they they may or may not come from that computer science background, but the right. You know, and I guess my point to this would be that like let, uh, it, it, we see perceive it as a big leap, but but people already have developed like anybody we're talking about, anyone I'm talking to here who who, who sort of listens to this and thinks this is me, right? Right. Like actually, it has the capability because they, they're already doing that. Right? Yeah. But we, we kind of to come back to that point of whether we consider HTML, CSS a bit of a toy or not real programming. The fact of the matter is it's sophisticated and complex uh, and people will have the capability, right? So it's really what is the path? What is the next step? What, and I think, you know, right now there are so many great resources. There are free courses. There's Coursera and there's, you know, other, you know, like finding that path I don't think is, is particularly, there are a lot of pathways there. But there is a lot of re-education that has to be done. Sure, and I think yeah. people have to make that. If, if it, I, I think that the time now is for people to acknowledge that this transition not only is going to happen, it right. probably already has happened. And and you know, like you know, if you see, I I, I, I get back to the analogy. I remember the the emergence of CSS, right? Mm -hmm. Now in the late nineties, right? So so you know, I I, I was kind of. A very well adopted success in in '96, really before it was even fully standardised and particularly well supported. But I just, you know, with my background and understanding publishing systems, a bunch of things, I kind of and hypertext, I kind of realised almost straight away how transformative it was going to be. Now it took probably eight years mm -hmm. until very top flight productions, you know, you know, famously ESPN published, and and there was a Wired magazine. Um, also did redesigns that heavily used CSS and modern standards and so on. But they didn't really emerge to 2003, 2004. So it was a, right. a kind of long period where CSS sort of slowly emerged. And but, but prior to that, you had a bunch of people who had developed incredibly technical, complex skills around using tables mm -hmm. and spacer gifts and a whole bunch of practices that a bunch of and most of the folks listening to this probably have never heard of, right? Well, listen, and I can sympathize. Resistance. I can sympathize with that completely because there's a part of my brain that is filled with uh, 68k assembly language, which 
unless I'm doing embedded system stuff, it's completely useless. Like, and the the fact that I devoted all of that time to learning it, you know. But I, but one of my things is that I think it's especially if you're in the technology business. But I think this applies kind of no matter what business you're in. Um, that you really the skill that you need to learn is how to learn, because what you're going to be learning or doing is going to be changing. Uh, pretty much constantly. So what you really need to do is try to figure out, you know, how can I learn how to learn? And what that does is it makes it less troublesome when there is a new technology that comes up. You know, you don't go, oh my God, you know, I don't know this. This isn't the, the thing that I specialize in. I don't know how to do this. You have already learned how to learn. And, and John, I think you can kind of, um, agree with me on this to some extent, or maybe you can't, I don't know. We'll see. But I think that once you've learned a programming language, yes, every language has different syntax, but once you kind of know how a programming language works, like learning another one is not that bad. It really isn't. And once you kind of uh, get the idea of how a particular system works or an API works, when you're given something new, like let's say someone throws some new JavaScript framework in front of me, I just look at it as like yet another API to learn. But the the knowledge of knowing how to digest an API and how to grok it and understand it and all that is something that I'm going to keep with me for a very long time. So I think learning how to learn, especially if you're in the tech business, is is what you need to be doing so that when the the tech does shift, you don't throw your hands up and go, oh, my God, like I'm going to go be a potato farmer somewhere, you know? I, I think that's very true. And I, I think we've seen this, anybody who's even doing this for four or five years, let alone 24 or five years, we've seen such profound transitions and changes. I think what's really important to also recognise is, and, and you know, so to go back to this, this, this transition from all these people who knew to these complex things with tables and spacing gifts and the resistance they had. And, and often, you know, they would point out the shortcomings of CSS, right? And they were kind of right but missing the point, right? Because you, and so, you know, and I think there's something that we, we ourselves have to resist, where we have to resist finding the reasons to not do things. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, you know the, the humans are naturally very conservative in some ways, but the, the constant of our industry will always be change. And so I think, you know, if you face change and you look at what's changing in the industry and you find that all too hard and want to throw your hands up, I, I, I think that, probably isn't the place to be right because mm. it will just continue to, to to do that and so we have to develop um you know our approach to how we go about it but also i think we have to kind of recognize the foundations that don't change as well i think there are foundations in software engineering and in, in how we develop and design for the web that won't change and you have them already and, and so it's it, it, it's knowing what foundations to keep and what to add to them that is, is, I think, really important. Well, you know what I think is really interesting? When I look at all these JavaScript frameworks, and maybe you know Patrick or Earl kind of have uh, an opinion on this as well, and uh, I'd be interested to, to hear what anyone has to say, really. But I, I look at all of these uh, various frameworks that are out there. Like, you can use Vue, you can use React, you can use Preact, you can use this, you can use that, you can use the other thing. And who knows you know, what the framework is going to be next. Um, but I look at this, and it, it does feel somewhat insane to me. Like it, it, it feels like at some point there should be a standard framework that comes with the browser. And there now I fully realize that there are downsides to that, right? Because what you can do is you can stagnate 
from the point of view that if, if this is the only framework that people can use, that you're not going to have the kind of innovation that we're seeing with React and Vue and, and the like. However, it is kind of insane to me, coming from the background of someone who is used to a uh, an API that comes with the operating system, right? Like if I'm designing something for an iPhone, for instance, or Android or, you know, whatever you want uh, to pick, there isn't a menu of a dozen different APIs that I can use to build this thing, right? There's the one that is provided by the company that makes the device or platform, and that's what I end up using. And it, it does seem somewhat insane to me that every time I load a web page, I'm not just loading the web page, but I'm loading the application framework for every single page that I go to. So if we get to the point where um, every web web page is uh, an app, and they're a single page app, and you know some of them are using Vue, some are using React, some are using Preact, some are using you know next whatever the next API framework is. It just seems insane to me that. When I go to a web page, I'm not only downloading the code that someone wrote for this specific page, but I'm also downloading the whole framework for the page. I mean, it just seems insane to me. Well, Andrew, I think you're missing that like a whole lot of jQuery snuck into JavaScript. Right. Yeah, uh, that has ha that has definitely happened, and That's I expect true. that if you know Vue or whatever becomes really widespread or that there will be a lot of you know really fancy caching that will start working its way into the browsers and it, they, those things will start to be built in hmm. I wanted to put in a word out I, I think that it's absolutely true that you say oh here's another JavaScript framework and, and another thing to program and it's just another programming language but um, I think that for the people who made that transition from you know I'm really good at slicing things up into tables. Right. I'm really good at doing that in Photoshop. Um, to then be thrown into, now I need to do this thing in CSS, which is much more like a programming language, and in those days, much more like a pretty terrible programming language. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's not just, oh, you get to learn a new thing. And I think that, for those people deciding that actually they'd rather go and be potato farmers is a totally reasonable career decision to make. No, you're right, because it is a different skill set, right? And and not only not, – not even just CSS, Marion. Like imagine uh, there's a big segment of web developers that they look at stuff like Webpack or Gulp or Grunt or even the concept of like build systems in general. And they're like, oh, my God, like what is this crap, you know? Yeah, what's the matter with, uh, you know, I was so happy with my FTP client that, that right. uh, didn't make me do it all on the command line. But yeah, the list of things that you need to learn to do modern web development, like you need to know JavaScript, you need to know, um, you know, at least some level of command line shell stuff. You need to learn a build system like Gulp or Grunt. You need to learn a, a code versioning system like Git. I mean, there's, there's just... A huge mess of things that you didn't used to have to learn. Earl, you were going to say something before. Did you want to chime in? Uh, well, I was just thinking about in terms of adoption of the JavaScript frameworks. Um, hmm. That I, I imagine. I mean, I know it's it's off-putting for me to try and to decide on things like that because what's the maintainability going to be? Uh, you know, I mean, I know that we talked 
I don't know, it's probably been more than a year we talked about about Grunt versus Gulp. And, uh, you know, these things fall out of favor. Right. Uh, and then they become unmaintained. And, and if you're just jumping around from framework to framework and you have legacy clients that, uh, you, you know, it just it's, it's, a, it's a lot to have to... It's not just like learning new tech, but it's it's constantly bouncing between them and then things falling out of favor. Right. And, you know, no, it's, yeah, it's, no. It's a lot. It's a lot to do. For, for sure. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, my... Wife loves that TV show Monk, where and one of his lines is, "It's a, it's a blessing, or it's a curse and a blessing, or a blessing and a curse, or something like that." And I think that's the case with a lot of modern web development is that it's a blessing that there is this kind of churn because there's some amazing innovation that can happen because there isn't one standards body that says you're going to do it this way for you know the JavaScript framework. And I think you get some amazing innovation because of that. But the the cursor, the downside of that is the the tech churn is just absolutely off the charts. And I know a lot of people that just feel burnt out. Like they, you know, there'll be a tweet about some awesome new JavaScript framework, and your reaction is not sweet. You know, can't wait to check it out. Your reaction is like a facepalm and like, oh my god, another one. Not another. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> it I mean, really I is. I purposely hold back and just kind of wait and see if something is going to take hold and be adopted. You know, you know handful of weeks ago everyone was into parcel js and right then now i see that there are a lot of limitations to using that i'm like i'm glad i didn't jump entirely into it not that it doesn't still look promising but you know you can spend all day chasing the shiny thing and you know even to your point about jquery there was a time where you had moo tools and yui and those are all kind of trying to see what would be the the glue that makes javascript work well across browsers and yeah jquery really came out on top and for a long time you know with CDNs, you can almost make the case that it's like everyone kind of has it cached, but maybe right. not quite. Um, but but yeah, yeah, but yeah. the cache won't always work because people will have like different versions of it. And, oh yeah, you yeah. know. So we really are downloading the whole not not just the the app that someone wrote, but the framework that someone wrote to power the app. We're downloading that every time we visit a web page. But just to get to your point about how bad it is, like my I am pretty new in terms of in being into web development. I don't even know what the hell Moo Tools is, right? I mean, that is before my time from the in terms of web development. I have no clue what that is. And that just shows you how quickly something that was widely used can become so obsolete that someone in the business doesn't even know what the hell it is. You know, and that goes right to Earl's point. Like, you know, Earl is probably like, well, you know, maybe I should learn Vue, but um, if I invest all of that time in learning it in two years, is it going to be gone? Right. You know, are people going to be on to instead of Vue, they're going to be on to you know Scenic or whatever, whatever the next JavaScript thing is. Right. And what do you think about all that, John? I mean, you must hear this kind of angst from web developers attending your conference about the churn of this stuff. Like it's off the charts. Look, yes, I do. And so, firstly, the way we've always approached this in our conferences, so we started our first conference in 2004, and I think our first one didn't have any JavaScript-related content mm. uh, because it was just really almost not easy. You know, like I think jQuery came out in, in, in around the same time as we did our first conference. And um, prior to that, if you did anything, you added a little bit of functionality with JavaScript. Everyone rolled their own little and bobs um you know it was the kind of ajax revolution in, in around 2005 they probably really started driving this it's a term no one ever uses anymore but um and probably a lot of people have never heard of it, right? but um 
sort of kind of you know around the same time that jQuery emerged uh, as and, and became ultimately the dominant framework. But we 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 have never we've always been quite insistent in our conferences to never focus at that level of the abstraction. Right? So I think we had one session once which was a shootout between kind of a whole range of different. Um, uh, competing frameworks like and and so on like like jQuery. Oh my God, back, nerd fight! Uh, probably, it was a bit, <laughs> uh, including one person who who advocated for not using frameworks. So that was um, you know, that was kind of many years ago now. Hmm. Look, I, I think it is. I think it's something that is going to continue in our industry. I think as as Marion alluded to. A lot of the experimentation that gets reabsorbed into the DOM and into our programming languages, like certainly JavaScript, uh, hopefully, you know, CSS has been influenced, particularly with, with the likes of SAS, right, with variables and so on. Um, the to try to like, I, I, so what I, I see happening a lot is is, is innovation in, in this space that then gets reabsorbed into the core of the platform. Um, right. And so having the likes of JavaScript to um, allow us to, uh, you know, like, you know, to do some of the things um, in our, you know, like, you know, to move things like the query selector and so on into JavaScript and away from jQuery, it kind of allowed people to, to sort of move, you know, a, a long way away from that. So, um, yeah, and that's, well, a re- that's a really good point. I think it's a cycle of yeah, innovation that we, we kind of see. So I don't think the cycle is going to go away. I think we have to develop our own personal approaches to how right. we kind of cope with it. Right? I, I think the maintainability point that Earl made is a, is a really strong one. And I think that's something in software engineering that, that has long been considered very important. Mm-hmm. On the web, I think, traditionally, less likely to be so. Um, you know, like we, we, we've sort of built to throw away a lot more on the web traditionally. But I, but I really think we, I think no matter what a good thing, I'm just right. to well I think no matter what your app is there is definitely something to be said for throwing everything out and doing it over again because software engineering is really strange because it's one of those things that you don't figure out how to build something right until after you've built it a lot of the time like that's just a thing so you can take a lot of the experience that you've gained from building that thing and instead of continuing to tack stuff onto it you know tech debt style at some point, there's a tipping point where it's way better for you to just burn the house down and start over again with everything that you've learned. Um, and you'll end up building something that's true, better. Although there are many cases of where that's basically killed off products and platforms. And true. So Joel, Spol- Joel Spol- Spolsky wrote about this extensively a number of years, well, probably over a decade ago now. Um, so Joel on software. So Joel, you know, kind of behind Trello and Stack Overflow and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other things. He he wrote about this, and, and it is the siren call. Oh, it's all too much. We've got so much tech debt. We're going to start all over again. But it generally, is often where products just collapse in a heap, and and um, you know the transition is so long, and and um, it, it, well, you know, uh, you know, feature compatibility side. So, and I think on the web, we're just starting to reach the stage where we're realizing the importance of maintainability over right. You know, multi-year, like you know, how many products out there? How many major platforms? You know, are the things that so much of our society relies on are actually built. Um, you know, the code base is a decade old. I think there'd be very little, right? Like, like what I mean is the stuff that runs in browsers, right? Where as opposed to operating systems, where some of the core of those technologies go back decades. Oh, see, so, where I thought and, and then, where I thought you're going to take this, John, was that. <laughs> 
that people would be scared at how gnarly some of the underpinnings of the the services that we depend on are. And it, you know, it's it's definitely true because like I, I've got a number of friends of mine that work at Apple, and there's one guy that doesn't work there anymore, but um, they had a there was a certain generation of MacBook Pro that they needed to ship the thing, but it didn't it didn't meet certain heat tolerances for when it was on your lap. Like it, it didn't meet those heat tolerances, so they couldn't ship it. The solution was they put a sticker on the damn thing. They put a sticker on it and it reduced the amount of heat that came out of it just enough that they could ship it. And it, you know, there are other instances of that. Like a, if anyone remembers Apple at one point had an entry into um, the uh, the business market where uh, they had this thing called an Xserve RAID, right? Which was like Apple's RAID array thing. And they had an issue where the thing wouldn't, like everything worked fine. It was tested. It was ready to go after it was announced. And then they turned developer mode off and the thing wouldn't boot. Like there was some kind of race condition that when they actually put it in production mode, it would not boot. So what did they do? What do you think they did, John? Right, ran it in developer mode. They <laughs> shipped it in devel- with development mode on. Absolutely, that's what they Which, did. I'm not quite sure you want to be running a service in developer mode, right? They, uh, well, this was just the, the, part, the boot process. Right. This was right. just the boot right. process. But I think, uh, you know, I, I thought that's where you're going with it, but I think it's very true. Like if people knew, you know, kind of the, the under the hood, everyone looks at their code and they're like, oh, you know, maybe it's not that great. But there's lots of code that's powering everything that is not that great, <laughs> like everywhere. That's, that's very, I think that's very, very true. Yeah. Um, but the question is, you know, do, does code get better by chucking out and starting again, or does the code get better by, over time, paying attention and refining it? And then there's a whole bunch of challenges, and I hear it all the time, from, you know, people building systems who, who if they got a couple of weeks to fix a whole bunch of things around performance, their performance increased dramatically, but the budget is coming from marketing people who are like, what do you mean? You're going to spend all this time and money and nothing new is going to happen. We're not getting a new feature out of it. You know, so I think a part of the challenge we have is um, that we're, we're kind of obsessed, you know, and it's not just our own obsessions, but I guess the, the role that the web has traditionally played more in the marketing communications world than necessarily IT software world right. uh, that emphasizes features and novelty over foundations and performance and security and and I, and I think that's that's an interesting transition that we're going through is where the web sits as a as a, a technology within organizations right who owns it uh, and as I said like traditionally it has been considered marketing communications it's been very campaign driven like and I think it's why we have a lot of short term code bases is uh, you know we're not building traditionally products we're doing campaigns right so we build a thing and it launches and it just sits there and it does its job and whether it's a short-term job or a medium-term job or a long-term job it, it, it's you know like it, it's it, it's essentially kind of done when it's, it's shit and, and moving to <laughs> yeah. a, a kind of product mindset uh and moving to you know like as also i guess you know the role that web-based content is is playing is increasingly sophisticated business critical maybe the only touch point or a Right. Critical touch point well, that that actually that actually plays off of that actually plays off of something that I've been saying for a while, and I really do think it's true that there are a lot of agencies and independent freelancers or whatever that kind of back their way into doing web development. Like you know, maybe the agency originally did um, magazine and video advertising, and now you know that the web is a thing. 
um, they kind of back their way into it. And a lot of these people don't understand that they are doing software development. And there's a there's and it's different than designing a brochure. It really is is a very different thing. And I think there are a lot of uh, again agencies that don't realize that they are software developers. Like they never thought they were. <laughs> you know, they never intended to be, but they have become software developers uh, by virtue of of what they're doing. And they they really need to have um, some of the practices that quote unquote real software development has but you know we're, we're getting kind of near the uh the end of this and i just wanted to put you on the spot john and i want your prediction when we sit down and we do this interview in 10 years discussing the web what is it going to be like what has changed it will will the web even exist 10 so years if we're like yeah so so one thing I sp- i've spoken a bit about recently is i kind of feel we're running into the limitations of a, a paradigm of computing as a human experience that we've had for the last 40 years. And we, let's call that the kind of personal computer, right? So what characterizes personal computers? And in many respects, I think it's fair to call this last 40 years uh, a single paradigm, even though it might look profoundly different if you go back to the Apple One and those very early computers that we ultimately, we used to call mini, um, micro computers and we ultimately kind of became the, the personal computer. Uh, like that looks very different to my iPhone 10, right? Um, right. I don't have an iPhone 10, by the way, but you know, like it looks very different to the iPhone 10. Um, and yet, if you think about what characterizes all of that period of, of computing is they're screen-based, they're largely text-based, and they're, they're based on reading and writing text for mm-hmm. the most part. Or, you know, we, we introduced some things like direct manipulation of, of objects like buttons or, you know, like someone initially pointed devices like mouses and then with our fingers. But if you think about what has happened over that period, what, so what changes have happened over time? Well, you know, we come from for, the, for 20 odd years of the first half or more of that, actually first three quarters of that period, um, we were stuck in rooms, right? We had no wireless, um, so we were stuck in rooms, stuck, you know, plugged into power, plugged into networks um, once the networks became a thing, right? Uh, it's only really, you know, then, then suddenly we, we kind of had laptops kind of maybe most 20 years ago, a bit less, where we could kind of take them somewhere and they didn't need power for a while. And then once you have Wi-Fi, you could take them a bit more, you could take them to places where they didn't need to be plugged in quite as much as a bit more portability. You know, a decade or so ago, we got the smartphone, obviously iPhone and then Android, and that allowed us to start taking our devices more and more places, right? Um, Yeah, a lot of people don't even have computers. They do everything on their phone. Yeah. Right, and we we can take them to places like bars or restaurants or family gatherings. We take them into our car. We can use them walking down the street. And the number of but embarrassing really photos running... skyrocketed. Right, <laughs> but the uh, but the challenge. So the challenge is that we're now taking computing into places it doesn't really work anymore. Mm. Like it, it interferes with the way in which humans have, have socialized and evolved over long periods of time. Right, by sitting in a room full of people and pulling your phone out instead of sitting around and having a cup of tea together or having a meal together or whatever it happens to be, you end up with a very different kind of dynamic that often doesn't work. If you get in your car, and you know, I heard yesterday that I believe the state of Georgia in the United States, the number of road fatalities has increased by 30% in recent years that they attribute largely to distracted driving because of, of devices. Right? Sure. We're sort of, I guess, 
you know, I think we're reaching the outer limits of a screen-based direct manipulation kind of approach to computing. And one of the reasons why is that it, re it relies on our frontal cortex and our visual cortex, which essentially are not well adapted to reading and writing text or, or those sorts of things. And as a consequence, essentially, um, they completely flood our brain, right? Our brain doesn't multitask when it comes to the visual cortex, it's good reading right. and writing. But I'm sitting here with a pair of e you know, earphones in um, that at the moment, I feel like I can't prototype of what computing interfaces might begin to increasingly look like over the next decade. So you're, so you're thinking uh, something you think, that is more omnipresent but requires less of your attention? I think that that's a very good way of characterizing it. So it can be there and listening all the time and giving me feedback all the time. Right. But humans are pretty good at multitasking when they listen. And, and then there are a bunch of concerns, there are a bunch of challenges without a doubt that I see. But if something can essentially augment my, me when I'm out and about, when I, you know, in a way that doesn't interfere with my driving a car or even potentially our conversations, right? It can whisper something to my ear. It can kind of, in the same way that my subconscious might whisper an idea as we're talking and, oh, that reminds me of a thing. I, I'm not saying that screen-based paradigms, I'm not saying the phones and the devices that we use are going away, because if you actually look at the history of computing, new paradigms of computing, whether it's a phone, you know, desktop, laptop, whatever, they never replace, like even our uses of those existing devices don't tend to go down, right? And, just, and it never happens as quickly as, as we think, right? Because if we, right. if we look at a lot of the prediction, we, we all should be in like flying cars. Right, you know, I mean, right. that—that's the thing right. that should be happening. Yeah. But what what the, what the science fiction of the fifties and sixties that promises flying cars largely didn't talk about was globally connected networks that gave you access at almost no cost to almost right. all of human knowledge. Right? So you're you're and thinking about world, so you're thinking about a device that I, I might have with me. Maybe it's my phone. Maybe you know it takes a different shape, but I it might be listening to my conversation. I'd be like, oh, you know what what is that? you know, whatever, and it will just kind of whisper in my ear with the answer. It's kind of, kind of the, the paradigm that you're looking at? I think that it will be a mode of interaction that mm. I, I think I think once we've reached, and I think we have largely reached the limits of this kind of current mode of, of visual-based direct manipulation of objects and, and very text and reading-based. Um, yes, I, I think so. And, 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 and I think two things are happening right now. is the miniaturization of microphones and and you know earpieces and, and so on, uh, such that you know the, these prototypes, the AirPod and, and you know Google Buds and various other devices. You only imagine what Moore's law will say about them. I mean, at the moment, um, tens of thousands of people a year get cochlear implants to, to right. allow them to hear better. Right? Yeah. Now, major league baseballers in the US get uh, LASIK eye surgery, and in fact, it's almost impossible to be a top flight batter in major league baseball. I had that done in 1999. Right? I had LASIK done. Well, and so, so what you're seeing is MLB, you know, um, terrible at baseball getting, though, by the way, <laughs> right. It's necessary, but not sufficient to be a good baseball. Yeah. So, so humans are doing these kind of technical modifications of our body to improve our capabilities. I'm mean, have been for long, you know, it's been specialized in the case of say sports people for a long time. Um, but I think there's, you know, I think there are all sorts of, um, directions that this, well, where does the where does the web where does the web fit into it though? Does it become just a uh, an information pool, a place where information gets put, and you know somehow 
the this device can kind of tap into it? I mean, do you think in 10 years uh, anyone's going to be banging out HTML? Do you think that's going to be a thing? Well, I, I, at the end of the day, this content is going to have to be distributed. Right. Uh, and I think I think what's great interesting is that, that text will continue to be essentially the, the kind of interoperability. I, I, so what, what I think we're going to see and, and what's going to kind of bring this about in no small part is the rise of a really good um, speech to text, text to speech, natural and language processing. Translation. Um, and so, right, and translation. Right? Yeah. So we're already seeing examples of this. Um, that, that, you know, you can prototype the Babelfish in an afternoon using, you know, any number of, of APIs from you know, IBM, from Amazon, from Google, uh, you know, like we've got... With hilariously you know, bad results in some cases, unfortunately. It, that's true, but that over time, yeah. the, the improvement is astonishing. Um, speech to text is, is getting astonishingly accurate. When I was in the US recently, uh, I, I would sit in a number of, of, of you, know, you know, from time to time, you sit in a bar, you're having a conversation, and then it's sports seems to be ubiquitous in bars in the US, and they will have captioning on. And it was clear to me that that captioning could not have been a human. Right. right? Because, because it was too quick, and yet it was extremely accurate. Right? So we're sort of seeing these applications in all sorts of places that we're not even aware of right now. And if you extrapolate out in terms of computing power, in terms of the, you know, how much better, like certainly if you look in the research labs and you're seeing the, 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 the accuracy, even of, of, of conversations between people like ourselves right now with different accents and so on. Um, basically, we, we, we're, we're quicker and better in labs now than humans are. Like the best in all the not as good at, at capturing, you know, questions as AI kind is now, in, in, certainly in places like some of the labs at Microsoft and so on. And, and it will only, I think those sort of technologies only take, you know, a small number of years now. To permeate everywhere, and so the well, so where's web in this? I think the important part about this is that uh, the web, and its great strength has always been that it is essentially worked everywhere. It's reached everywhere, and it's it's connected everything, right? And the the alternative is uh, you know a, a single stack, a single technology stack owned and controlled by a single vendor, uh, and 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 I think you know like within certain very narrow confines that may or may not happen, but I think. As we permeate computation in more and more places, um, the idea that it will all run within a single technology stack controlled by a single vendor is just no longer really. I don't think it's made sense for a long time. Uh, I think it makes sense in the context of traditional applications. I just don't think it makes sense in the context of this highly distributed kind of you know, approach to functionality. So, John, you, so you reminded what, you reminded me of a bit of trivia that I'm going to see. Right. You, you probably know this. But I didn't know it when I figured it out. But um, do you know, like you've seen those news programs and you mentioned one where there's text that scrolls along the bottom with the headlines and stuff. Do you know what those are called? Does anyone know what those are called? Oh, I forget now. But I know a lot of them are, are SVG. But do you know the name for that scrolling thing? Does anyone know? It's either the marquee or the crawl, I would say. Ticker shape? It, it, yeah, ticker sometimes. Oh, the old. Address, but. It's actually called a Chiron. C a Chiron. Chiron. Is it Chiron? Okay. <laughs> it's Chiron. <laughs> whatever it is. Whatever. Um, Chiron's just the big, bold. It's not the... But scroll. the reason it's called that is that's the name of the company that invented the tech that did the first scroll. 
Mm-hmm. And it became became like a term like a Xerox, you know, or whatever. Well, listen, John, I, this has been fantastic. I would love to, to have you on again here because um, I think that we could talk about the future of tech. And it, it would be really fun to, like, put this in a time capsule. And really come back in 10 years and be like, you know, oh, absolutely. How, how right were we about any of this crap? Um, but I think that, uh, that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. Um, to have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our RSS feed or subscribe via iTunes or Google Play. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a review. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at devmode.fm and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Just leave us a comment on the devmode.fm website. Uh, For the Devmode FM podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Earl Johnston. I'm Patrick Harrington. I'm Marian Nullivant. And our special guest, John Alsop. Thanks for for coming on, man. This was amazing. I had a great time. Thanks so much. And I look forward to being back in 10 years' time. Yeah, (laughs) we're we're going to have you back in 10 years' time and and see how well you did. All right, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ha <laughs> ha.